1: I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details.
2: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
3: I battle between what I remember and this narrative that I developed over the time with the police.
4: How did it go from Melissa saying Bill was the perpetrator to Rodney Lincoln being arrested and eventually convicted?
3: I know on some level how it happened and that I wasn't solely responsible. The city was out for blood. I'm Leah
4: Rothman. This is The Real Killer, Episode 10, Memories and Misidentifications.
3: You know, I, d- I did ask myself many times why I said Bill. Could it have been I was a little kid and Miss Arch, or this is the name I knew the man by? I don't know how it got to be from one person to the other. I can't explain the moment it happened, but I think it was an evolution. Maybe my recollections and memories were not as good as theirs. I didn't trust myself anymore.
4: Because Melissa's memory is really the linchpin of the whole case, I want to understand more about it. Where did her early memories of the perpetrator come from? and? Why did those memories change? Somewhere along the way, things pivoted away from Bill and to Rodney. Why and how, and what part did detectives play in all of it? I started with reaching out to Gary Wells. He's a distinguished professor of psychology at Iowa State University. He's a giant in the field of social psychology, cognitive psychology, and its intersection with the law. He's also done extensive research on lineup procedures and the accuracy of eyewitness identification dating back to 1977. He's authored over 300 articles. His findings have been included into psychology and law textbooks, and he's worked with the Justice Department to write the training manual on eyewitness identification evidence.
5: We've got a reliability problem in eyewitness identification. Uh, Because most of the DNA exonerations, about 72 percent, involve cases of uh, mistaken identification. In
4: 2014, the Midwest Innocence Project reached out to Gary Wells, asking him to review and advise them on Rodney's case. This was before Melissa's recantation. If it's okay, let's first talk about Melissa. The first thing she says is, Bill did it. From there, in the hospital, she starts remembering other things about Bill. She remembers that Bill drove a yellow car, then it turns into a taxi, and then a white Volkswagen. She remembers spending the night at his house. There was a park across from the house. What do you make of the first responses that come from her?
5: Well, I I think the first responses are, you know, she could say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, but she didn't. In general, the spontaneous mentioning of this person, Bill, is a big lead. I mean, it should be followed up on. That's a meaningful statement, and especially if you have nothing else to to really contradict that. I don't want to attribute bad motives to the, to the case investigator here, but throughout this process, it just looks very chaotic. I mean, Early in this process, she's been sh- being shown people who don't fit their description, they don't look at all like each other. The only thing they seem to have in common is most of them were named Bill, or William, or Billy, or Willie. And so that whole strategy was just to put a bunch of bills in front of her, right? That was a bad idea. That's a fishing expedition.
4: with Melissa unable to ID any of those men. In time, the composite sketch is drawn. Remember, they start with a photo of a family friend named Dennis Smith. Allegedly, Melissa had said he kind of looked like the killer.
5: For the sketch artist to have a picture of the person she says he looks like is another. Like, what what is the point of that? Did he even need her at that point? Is she adding anything? I doubt it when we have done experiments to produce composites, what we find is that in general, they tend not to look very much like the perpetrator, uh, like the person they saw, because it's just so difficult. We can't pick out the nose and the eyes and the mouth, you know, we don't have those things separately uh, in memory. So here's the big problem though. When you produce a composite, Now, the composite may or may not resemble the real perp, or very much. But you use that to find a suspect. Guess what? You put the composite out to lots of people, right? Well, yeah, of course, it always looks like somebody. Which is
4: exactly what happened in this case. The sketch is released to the public. Joanne's family sees it and says the man looks familiar. And after going through Joanne's diary with police, they land on Rodney. So then they decide that Rodney is their suspect. And they go to Melissa with two photos. One is of a family member, a cousin of her half sister, her older half sister. And the other, and that's a color Polaroid. And the other is a black and white mugshot of Rodney Lincoln. Sort of just talk me through that.
5: Okay. So if you, if you just come in at that point where they decide that they're going to try to do an identification with Rodney Lincoln, they would have needed to understand and appreciate the fact that, well, we suspected Lincoln only because he was the closest match to the composite, right? Right. What they needed to do then was create a proper identification procedure, which would be at least six photos. And in those six photos, they need to pick other people who also have some similarities to the composite and use those. And it can't just be two. So she picks Rodney. Burgoon
4: said his name's not Bill. And Burgoon said, Melissa replied, it's that's him, that's him. And he's like, but his name is not Bill. And she said, that's him.
5: She had seen Rodney before. And so when she says that's him, is what she's, what she's doing is she's recognizing someone that her mother did have a relationship with at some point. And that this is what we call a source monitoring error, which is a particular problem that afflicts everyone, but it's stronger with children and stronger with the elderly. And that is, you remember, in this case, the face, but you've confused the context. So Hmm. yeah, it's a familiar, it is a familiar face. You have been in the same room with that person, right? By that point, that memory may be of the perpetrator may start to almost be blending with this person. And I say that because she was right about some things about, it turns out about Rodney, not about Bill, right? That he lived with his
4: mom and that
5: there was a park, ac- right. Park across the street. So, so it's quite possible that what is augmenting this identification is the fact that now you're showing her someone she has seen before and, 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 and seen in the context of an interaction with her mother. Mm.
4: She picks Rodney, right? And then within two hours, she is viewing a live lineup.
5: Right. So the live lineup, I mean, once you get an identification of somebody from photos, turning around and doing a live lineup in which he's the only person uh, in common between um, the photos and the live lineup, it's pretty much guaranteed the witness is just going to turn around and pick the same person. I and mean, it doesn't matter if it's a child or an adult, right? They're gonna pick the same person out of the live lineup that, they, that you just led them to pick out of uh, photos.
4: Besides this, there are other issues with lineups that need to be considered.
5: So the, a big problem with uh, eyewitness identification is that uh, witnesses tend to pick the person from the lineup who looks most like the perpetrator relative to the other members of the lineup, right? And that makes sense. Comes very natural to people. It's just kind of baked into the, our psychology is to make relative judgments. I mean, I don't know the actual size of this, whatever it might be. I can't tell you in, in millimeters or whatever, but I can see that this is bigger than that, right? So this is how we make most of our judgments, right? In terms of them being relative to something else. And so it is the case with a a lineup too. The natural tendency, the natural propensity is to look at a lineup, quickly home in on who best matches my memory. Relative to the others, this is the best person. And then there's a tendency to run with that and pick that person. The problem with that is that what if the perpetrator is not in the lineup? There still is somebody who better matches your memory than somebody else. So an absolutely critical and essential type of instruction is, keep in mind, the person who committed this crime, the person you saw might not be in here. And so it may, maybe the correct answer is none of these. That's a very important instruction. It takes pressure off the witness.
4: So then they're at this live lineup, I know you've seen it, and these gentlemen are 21, 21, and 18 years old, shaggier, longer hair, inches taller than Rodney. Rodney's 37, shorter, dark hair, um, and also just shorter, And in terms of fillers, how did Metro PD do with the fillers in this
5: live lineup? On the live lineup, I mean, not only is Melissa coming into it, having already only two hours earlier, picked Rodney Lincoln from a two choice alternative. But in addition, the three other people in the live lineup are very uh, poorly selected fillers. They don't fit the description. Rodney's the only one who who, uh, fits the description if by that point we consider the description to be this uh, uh, composite. When you select good fillers, they should all have that same characteristic, so that if he's innocent, he shouldn't stand out.
4: So I I interviewed Detective Burgoon recently, and I asked him about the live lineup, and he basically said, that it was a Saturday and there weren't too many people there and they only had 20 hours. In Missouri at the time, they only had 20 hours to apply for a warrant. You know, we basically had 20 hours to put together this live lineup.
5: I would think that 20 hours would be enough time to round up people. You don't have to get them from jail cells. I mean, you can, you can get them off the street. Personally, I don't think that's a good excuse.
4: And the fact that lead detective Joe Burgoon, a man that Melissa came to love, is part of the lineup at all, is a problem. Talk to me about double-blind lineups.
5: The idea of the double-blind lineup, which I came up with in the late 80s and started pressing pretty hard on in, into the 1990s, was that I began discovering... Oftentimes, um, the person doing the lineup, the detective, who knows that his suspect is in position three, is inadvertently, unintentionally, we're not saying it's intentional, uh, cueing the witness toward number three. Consider what you would do. I mean, it's perfectly natural. Nobody thinks they're they're uh, doing something inappropriate. So let's say you're a case detective. You think that... You know you put together a lineup you think that number three you know number three is your suspect you know that numbers one two four five six those are just fillers right you show it to the witness and the witness says um number two now take your time be sure you look at all of them right but if the witness says um number three yeah yeah tell me about number three so It's just human nature on the part of, uh, in this case, the lineup administrator to sort of leak uh, or inadvertently steer. And so the double blind lineup is a pretty simple idea. I mean, I just borrowed it from what we already know in scientific testing, namely that, well, the person who administers this photo lineup and anybody who's in that room should not know which person is the person who is the suspect and which ones are fillers then they cannot inadvertently, unintentionally, or whatever, steer the witness around or influence uh, how the witness feels about their choice.
4: So you know how the rest goes. Melissa picks Rodney, then two trials later, he's convicted. Fast forward three decades. So Melissa in 2015 says... Rodney didn't do it. He was never there that day. And then she also says, I believe Tommy Lynn Sells did it. So what do you make of that new memory?
5: Well, I, th- I think that uh, Melissa is uh, showing great bravery here in saying that she now believes that it was not Rodney Lincoln because that requires her to like sort of rewrite a significant part of her life history. That's that's huge. Now, I do think that what she's doing is she's weighing, maybe she's weighing the evidence a little bit better. I mean, she's coming to grips with things that she didn't know at the time. I mean, as an adult, she's now processing, his name isn't Bill, right? He does have an alibi, in other words, she's taking into consideration uh, this other evidence. At the same time, why is she saying that it's this other person? Uh, It seems very unlikely that she's able to recover that original memory and base it on that because too much time has passed. It seems unlikely she would be able to cast her mind back and recover that original memory. I think that's long gone. It wasn't that good in the beginning. There's too much water under the bridge. She's already made this mistaken identification and believed that it was somebody else all along. These things make that original memory largely untraceable. The legal system tend not to buy recantations. It's sort of like, well, <laughs> then you must have, if you were wrong before, why wouldn't you be wrong now? You know, does memory get better with time? Oh, your memory's better now? No.
4: I have a lot of questions about memories. I mean, how exactly do memories even work? And what causes them not to? I asked three memory experts to share their years of knowledge and research with me. They agreed to talk about the case as a hypothetical. I've heard people compare memory to um, (laughs) a video recorder.
1: Is that reasonable? I mean, (laughs) the fast answer is a straightforward yes and no.
4: That's Daniel Reisberg. He's an emeritus professor and a cognitive psychologist whose research focuses on how people remember emotional events in their lives. For the last 20 years, he's been called to testify as an expert witness in ID cases, confession cases, and cases involving children's and adults' memories.
1: Like a video recorder, memory has an input side, you know, akin to what happens when you hit the record button on your phone or a player. Memory has a storage time when the information is just sitting there waiting for some eventual playback. And memory also has a playback function. But the moment you start looking at the comparison in any sort of serious way, the comparison just collapses. And I would put at the top of the list um, two crucial points. One of them is that the input to memory is selective. And there is, in many occasions, a lot of information arriving at your ears or a lot of information out in front of your eyes. And if you're not paying attention to it, it does not get recorded into memory. But the other, I think, even more important distinction is that once information is recorded on your phone, it sits there dormant. And in that way, what you eventually get in playback really is a high quality rendition of exactly what went in in the first place and memory is massively different because our memories are dynamic and information that's in storage is constantly getting updated and elaborated and merged together with other sources of information.
0: I agree with Dan, that's the way memory works, it's a wonderful, wonderful system. Um, but it's, um, it's a system that was not, not developed for the courtroom.
4: That's Iris Blandon-Gitlin. She's a professor of psychology at California State University, Fullerton. Her research focuses on memory in the forensic context. Memory as it relates to identification of people and events, and detecting deception as it relates to interviewing and interrogation. She also works as an expert witness, primarily in criminal cases.
0: Within the courtroom, a lot of time needs to be accurate and complete. That's not what it evolves to be. So it's, it's, there's a conflict uh, between what the legal system needs uh, you know, in order to solve crimes um, and what human, humans can give um, from their memory which is it's wonderful for every day, for all of our experiences, but not for the courtroom. The only other piece that I would add to that is people don't necessarily have a good sense of when their memory fails.
4: And that's Heather Kleider Offit. She's a research professor at Georgia State University. Her work focuses on memory errors with an emphasis on courtroom applications. Her work also looks at face recognition and eyewitness identification. Most recently, she's been looking at how people remember information that's been imagined versus actually experienced and the confusion that comes with it. Like Dan and Iris, for the last 10 years, Heather has also been working as an expert witness.
0: People can feel um, because they remember something with a lot of vividness or a lot of detail, then they can come to believe that it's highly accurate and become very confident in that. And again, to add to what Iris said, That isn't necessarily the case that works in the courtroom because memory fades over time.
4: Over time, and right off the bat. Here's Dan again.
1: Memories fade, all memories fade. The fade begins immediately. Um, You know, there's no honeymoon period in which the memory is, you know, resting before the fade starts. That's just not the way it works. One of the Um, claims about memory I commonly encounter is that some events are immune to forgetting. And people say, I will remember that till the day I die. I'll never forget it. I remember it as though it were yesterday. And, you know, there's a kernel of reality there because some events are memorable, but at the same time, no event is immune to forgetting.
0: To what Dan's saying, It's not that you're necessarily going to forget that the thing happened. I'm not going to forget I was in a car accident, but the details surrounding that event are going to update and change. So, you know, it's not that people completely forget something happened. You're not going to remember all the details of it. And it turns out
4: event memories are very different than facial ones. Here's Iris again.
0: The event is likely to be Replay, rehearsed, right? As people give the account of an event and they talk about it and try to reconcile, they think about it. And so potentially there's a stronger memory for the the details of the event, of parts of that event, than there is for the image of a perpetrator, because that doesn't get rehearsed.
4: And trauma has a surprising effect on memory, actually a contradictory one. Here's Dan.
1: One of the things that trauma does, you know, in you know, lots of field studies, lots of laboratory studies, is sharpen your focus. The things that they do focus on during the trauma tend to be longer lasting compared to memory for some, you know, mundane, everyday occurrence. And part of the complication here is that it's often difficult from the outside to figure out exactly what the person is going to focus on. And so, you know, two people going through what seem to be similar events may end up focusing on different things, and therefore they're going to have very different memories.
4: And the opposite can also be true. Like when someone experiences a lot of stress and arousal, something called catastrophic memory loss can occur. So in regards to Melissa, we don't know which one happened. Did she have some very sharp memories based on where she put her focus? Or was she so stressed that like the perpetrator's face just became a blur. We'll never know. But what about exposure time? It seems the man was in the apartment for a long time. Melissa said she got a good look at him. At times, his face was a
0: foot away. Here's Iris. We know of cases, and also from research, that even if you have long exposure time to a face, I mean, the famous case of uh, the Ronald Cotton case, uh, you know... uh, the the rapist was in the room for a long period of time with jennifer the victim right and so she even said that she studied his face she wanted to be able to remember him right to be able to you know make sure that they got to him Mm -hmm. and she still made a mistake and when she came across the real real rapist years later in another trial um she actually came in front and saw him and she could not. Nothing triggered, nothing triggered in her mind. And that was a real rapist, proven by DNA, right? And so you know from these cases, but also from the empirical research, that it's possible to also misremember or forget um, a face, even if you had long exposure time.
4: And again, where was Melissa's focus? Was it on the man's face or the knife he was stabbing her with? What about age? Does a child's memory work the same as an adult's? The answer is basically yes, with a few exceptions. One of the biggest being suggestibility. Here's Iris again. I
0: think in a suggestive environment where you have suggestive kinds of interviewing and and, uh, lots of adults with an interest of trying to get more information and also with authority figures all of that kind of environment would definitely potentially influence that person's memory. I would add just quickly is that I don't want to leave the, f- the feeling that, you know, children's memory cannot be relied upon. You know, it can, given the right circumstances, the right set of protocols. And we know that from their research, it's very clear children can give reliable truthful information and complete information in the the right conditions. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elajei Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow.
2: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
4: So basically, memories fade almost immediately, they're malleable, and both adults and children can make errors when IDing someone. It seems like the burden's on law enforcement to conduct interviews and lineups in ways that produce good, reliable information without contaminating the original memory. Which brings us back to Gary Wells and what should have happened in Rodney's case.
5: I think this whole thing all along needed to be solved with, if at all possible, with uh, harder evidence, a seven-year-old, you can't be showing her 50 photos over several days and of all kinds of different people. And then giving her a really biased final test of only two photos. Once you did that, you sort of trampled on the evidence. You know, I, I've been pushing this analogy um, that I think that you know eyewitness evidence uh, should be treated as a form of trace evidence. You know, trace evidence we usually think of as fingerprints of blood or semen or hair, fibers, that a perpetrator left behind at the scene of the crime that can help establish the identity of the perpetrator. Well, that's also true of eyewitness evidence. What happened here was the perpetrator left a trace behind, except that trace was in the head. Of Melissa, it's the same as going into a crime scene and just trampling all over the place. Oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter if I pick up this object or if I s- step over here or I'm going to I'm going to move the gun. You know, like y- you would never consider doing those things when investigating a crime. Well, there should be a lot of things you don't consider tampering with, like the witness's memory when investigating a crime as well.
4: Should the detectives, should they have known better back in 1982?
5: It's hard to put ourselves back into 1982. You know, I don't want to be one who says that this was not good faith at the time. I can't really make that judgment. What I can do now, though, is say that um, given this path of these events, as they were created and unfolded The result in the end of Melissa picking Rodney from that one of two photos and then turning around and picking him from the lineup is of no real probative value. It's not dispositive of guilt. It's not really something that even can qualify as evidence if by evidence we mean that it's that somehow we're at least getting beyond more likely than not. It's just not there. Gary's
4: work, like his pre-lineup instructions, choosing fillers, double-blind lineups, videotaping the identification, and better interviewing of witnesses, are procedures that have been implemented in almost 30 states, covering about 70% of the population.
5: There's still a long way to go, but we're in a much better position today than we were certainly in 1982.
4: So, of course, I had to ask. Is Missouri one of the states that has adopted these reforms? They have not. not. Next time on The Real Killer.
1: Imagine
0: you take this job and you're told that you don't have the
4: the right to correct wrongful convictions. A system seemingly built to fail not just Rodney Lincoln, but many others.
5: Lamar keeps me up at night. Son of a bitch. I could could talk like a sailor for five minutes talking about how motherfucking pissed I am that Lamar is still sitting in prison. Makes me puke.
4: The Real Killer is a production of AYR Media and iHeartRadio hosted by me, Leah Rothman. Executive Producers Leah Rothman and Aliza Rosen for AYR Media. Written by me, Leah Rothman. Senior Associate Producer Eric Newman. Editing and Sound Design by Cameron Tagge. Mixed and Mastered by Cameron Tagge. Audio Engineering by Jesus C. Mario. Studio Engineering by Tom Weir and Kelly McGrew. Legal counsel for AYR Media, Gianni Douglas. Executive producer for iHeartRadio, Chandler Mays. If you're enjoying The Real Killer, tell your friends about it and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast.